This past week, the New York Times, I don't know if you've heard of them, they're kind of a big deal, did a little write-up on five horror movies to stream now, and one of them was a little movie called Blood Conscience. It says it's streaming on Tubi, but it also popped up on Shudder this week. And as you know, I like to interview my filmmakers who got films on Shudder. I'm not going to dive into the plot here on the intro, I'll save that for the episode. But I will quote something from the article. Uh, the writer-director has said he wanted to make a movie that takes place the day after a slasher film. And he's turned that idea into a nail-biter of a thriller. He's also added a fresh social spin and dark humor, a combination that will appeal to horror films like me who enjoy a movie about evil with no easy explanations or ways out. Go check out Blood Conscience on Shudder right now, or if you don't have Shudder, it's also streaming on Tubi. But before you do all of that, listen to this episode with the filmmakers behind it. Welcome to the basement. So last week on Shudder, I watched a film that definitely really struck a chord with me. I found really interesting. And of course, like I always do when I see a film on Shudder, I track down the filmmakers behind it. And I have the first um, writer, director, producing pair and in film and in life, it seems. I have Tim Covell and Christina Benke on the show, the people behind the film Blood Conscience. How are you two doing today? Doing great. Yeah, All right. glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you guys for saying yes and coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the film. I obviously enjoyed the film because I asked you guys to come on the show. <laughs> um, Thank you. But um, what is like, just for starters here, the, the film is available if you are a Shutter subscriber right now. And I highly always recommend Shutter on this show to a lot of fans. This isn't a horror film show, but... I'm such a genre film fan that I always have to kind of get that stuff out there as much as I can to the listeners. Uh, but Blood Conscious, what is like the so-called elevator pitch for the movie? Like, what would you say? Yeah, it's basically a, a vacationing family uh, goes out into the mountains and um, instead of enjoying a, a lovely weekend with with uh, family members, uh, they encounter uh, a horrifying massacre, uh, and the perpetrator uh, claims he's he's killed everyone he's killed uh, because they were possessed by demons. And uh, while they're able to turn the tables on him, they then have to decide whether they uh, believe his story or um, what they've seen with their own eyes. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a pretty cool. Pretty cool little movie. I, I want to say I heard this. I don't know if this was in a. Um, I should also preference. Uh, New York Times, an article. There was an article for like top five films you should be streaming this week. At uh, this week, meaning last week, I should probably say by now. And one of them, and I think the top one on there was was Blood Conscious. And I don't know if this is from that or did I hear it from an interview somewhere when I was doing a little research on YouTube. Um, but it's like this film takes place after the horror movie, I think is what I had heard. I, I, and I thought that was just such a cool, 
approach, like almost having it take place after a massacre. Um, yeah, yeah, that was the that was sort of the the pitch at the time when we were uh, when we were developing it, which is the it's a, a story that takes place the day after a, a slasher film. Cool. Uh, so, like I said, right at your little intro here, you two are my first like couple on the air who's a filmmaking who's a filmmaking duo. Uh, how long have you two? I mean, how long have you two been making films together? I, I think I'll start there. Um, well, I... 2011, I think. Since, yeah, yeah but... pretty much as long as we've been um, dating um, and, and a couple, we've been making films together, which is um, not, not kind of the reason we got together. It just sort of happened at the same time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think like shortly after we met, Tim started working on this web series. Um, and I kind of just jumped on board and decided I was going to be involved and, and it went from there. So. Cool. Yeah, I think every, you know, every film we've done together, uh, Christine has become like more and more involved uh, to the point where when we finally decided to do a feature because we were self-financing uh, and it was obviously going to impact, uh, you know, both our, our lives um, uh, pretty significantly. It just, I mean, it, it, there was any question that she would, she would be sort of uh, holding the reins as, as producer film. Yeah. No, I, I, as a filmmaker myself, I always joke, not really joke, but next time I get to take a big swing at something, I want my wife to like, probably be like my line producer or something because she's so good with numbers and whatnot <laughs> and everything like if we ever run a business like she's my accountant 100 percent um so I, I always i actually always think you know like you know spouses make a good like producing pair for films and whatnot like i mean christopher nolan and his wife make films and you know yeah so anyway moving on i kind of th these questions coming up are for both of you so um i just want to get to know your two like origin story what really kind of were some early inspirations in film whether it was directors or just films you watched kind of coming up when you were young well it's funny i i didn't always think i was going to work in film I, i've done a few different um worked in a few different fields and i was i did a lot of you know, as a kid, I wanted to act and I did a lot of community theater and that kind of thing, but I did always love movies. And um, I don't know, I think I, I just wanted to, like always wanted to explore and see what was out there. When I was high school, in high school, I got really obsessed with foreign film and uh, particularly um, the movie Amelie. So then I like wanted to find everything that Audrey Tattoo was in. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, I always had a curiosity about it. Um, and then in, college, I, I had a friend who was, I guess what you'd call a film snob and was really into like the classics and the standards. And um, so we'd kind of have these movie nights and watch, you know, like Bergman and stuff like that. And um, so through that, I sort of developed this, um, you know, kind of basis. And then of course, um, once I met Tim, it's like, we just, um, I think we were the first people we'd met who just only wanted to watch movies and um, you know, in Mad Men, I think this is the first thing we were like, we binged <laughs> together and was like, like, oh, do you want to watch another episode? Like, yeah. And it was like a no judgment thing. And I think that was the, you know, this was like before binging was like a cultural phenomenon. So um, that was like a big basis of our relationship was just watching as much as we could. And yeah, 
and that and, and Twin Peaks, I think David Lynch is a huge yes. for this. Yeah. Huge Lynch fan over here. So, uh, yeah. What about you, Tim? Yeah, for, for me, uh, I just had a love of uh, film uh, from a pretty early age. Um, as far as horror is concerned, uh, my attraction was always more to sort of elegant horror, you know, hammer horror films. And also I was um, in junior high uh, obsessed with uh, a show called Dark Shadows, if you, if you know what that is. Yes, uh, sir. So from the 60s and early 70s, Sci-Fi Channel had it. They'd run two episodes a day or something like that. So I'd watch it. And there's 1,200 episodes, you know, you can go for years. And, uh, and I became obsessed with it. So I've always enjoyed this sort of, um, I guess, the classic trappings of, of melodramatic horror. Um, and then I really didn't get into the sort of, I guess, slasher, you know, the big name slasher, slasher films until I was um, uh, in high school and in college. Um, so I know a lot of, a lot of guys my age got into that at a really, really young age and it just sort of imprinted itself on their brains. But, uh, for me, it was always the more, more sort of, uh, so-called highbrow melodramatic stuff, um, that, that made an impact when I was younger. And I really didn't come to the, come to more straightforward rock'em sock'em horror until I was, you know, uh, later in my teen years. Um, but it did have quite an impression uh, which is why, uh, you know, Blood Conscious is is a Cabin in the Woods thriller. And so, yeah, from, from there, I guess I just, uh, you know, kind of went off to film school um, and have always been attracted to, for the most part, uh, at those sort of 1950s, 1960s uh, European art house uh, films, Fellini and Bergman. Uh, and then, of course, um, David Lynch is a huge uh a huge influence. When I was, I think, uh, just in high school, I went to visit a, a, uh, a cousin, um, you know, a few states away. And her husband um, sat me down. He said, okay, you want to be a, you, you want to be in film. You want to work in film. Uh, well, have you seen, you know, this movie, this movie, this movie? I said, no, no, I haven't seen any of these movies. And he's like, all right. And he takes me over to his, uh, you know, this, this big closet full of VHS tapes. And he's like, all right, here you go. And he hands me Blue Velvet, hands me Blood Simple, Apocalypse Now, uh, uh, Trouble in Mind, uh, Deer Hunter, you know, the list goes on. And, uh, and he's like, all right, just take these home. You got to watch them. You got you to learn these films. Uh, and so that was a huge, um, you know, uh, a huge turning point for me in thinking about uh, the, what film could, could do, I guess, artistically, um, but also um, thinking about what, uh, that you, think about the idea that you don't have to make a film that's 100% literal, it can have this veil of artifice to it um, and still really hit people emotionally. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I kind of feel like some of that came off a little bit in, maybe not some of it, but I'd say in, in your, in your guys' most recent film. Um, have you two always kind of had, sounds like you guys, this answers itself almost from everything you guys have just told me, but um, have you always been creative or just used a creative outlet, you know, since you were young, even if it's not film, you know, just anything else? 
Yeah, I'd say definitely. I, I was always kind of a yeah, very imaginative kid and very theatrical. I, I wanted to be a writer when I was, I would write stories all the time. And um, yeah, I always kind of came up with these different like, scenarios and things like that and acted them out. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess um, for me, it was always kind of based in storytelling and yeah, creating these characters and, and scenes and things like that. So, so that's what's, that's I think kind of the, the conduit that's always drawn me in um, creatively speaking. That and um, also, uh, well, clothes making, I guess. I, I, I knit and I um, make clothes and I also did the costumes for this. So that was like another kind of way I was able to, to flex a creative muscle on this film. And, and for me, uh, my when I was a young, my dad was into, this is late 80s, early 90s, got into uh, uh, computer animation. So we had an, uh, a Commodore Amiga. I might be dating myself. Uh, uh, maybe maybe people don't don't remember the Amigas, but they were these. Uh, they were sort of uh, they went the way of of Betamax uh, and 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 other brands that uh, that most people weren't using uh, later in the '90s. But it was a, a computer that a lot of people were using for for uh, animation, and uh, he had one. And so uh, I kind of caught a bug from playing around with his equipment and making little animations for videos I was doing, making titles for uh, videos I was doing with my friends or for school projects. Um, and that's really where I gained uh, sort of a more practical experience in video making or which led to filmmaking. Nice, man, nice. nice. Um, this is a reoccurring question I have on the show. Every time I talk to filmmakers, no matter the genre, just because about a year ago I did this episode with a, a friend of mine um, with us both being filmmakers ourselves, creative people, just kind of, we picked out like five films and I'm not asking you for five films. Don't worry. <laughs> That's another episode in and of itself. Uh, but like just, just films that were directors or just something we saw that made us go like, Oh, I want to do that that's something I want to do. Like, so I just always have to ask any filmmaker that comes on, what was something within the medium, whether it was even working on a set, someone else's movie, uh, just what made you want to do this? I guess I'll, I'll start. Uh, as far as movies go, I'll, I'll give an answer that prop maybe, maybe no one who's listening to this will be familiar with. It was a straight to video, very indie production, uh, shot on VHS uh, called Lord of the Shadows by a director, writer director named Mike Bennett in, I think he lived in Ohio. Somehow my dad got his hands on this. He made a couple of, he made three films that I was aware of. One called Nightmare on Neptune astronauts travel to Neptune, they find a secret Nazi base that's been hiding there since the end of World War II. Lord of the Shadows, suburban, middle-class, suburban Ohioans encounter some, uh, you know, vampires in their midst. And then a, a film called What Now, which is like a post-apocalyptic, you know, it's almost like The Road or something. And I have to say, all you know, these films are... I'd say a good 30% of them are just somebody with a video camera running behind somebody else who's getting chased by somebody else. 
uh, very low budget, I mean, to say the least. But when you watch something like that as a kid and you're seeing adults do something that is so low budget that and so stripped down, you can see all the seams, it makes you realize, oh, well, this isn't just magic. This is just doesn't, you know, it, it, this is not impossible for me to wrap my head around. I can see how they did this, right? I have a video camera at home. I have access to this. I could, maybe I could even do this a little bit better in some ways or more to my liking. And so you see this and um, I've watched those videos uh, numerous times just to get an idea of, you know, how, why is, doesn't this work? Why am I confused? Oh, it's too dark. I don't know what's happening. Oh, well, you've got to light your location. You've got to have enough light so that people can understand what's happening in front of the camera, these types of things. And so uh, it was hugely impactful. Um, uh, so as I said, don't know if anybody uh, is aware of these, these videos or can find them, but uh, they, they had a huge impact on me. I'm, I'm going to look into that because I actually, no one's ever come on this show and been like, oh, I saw this rural horror film or this from middle of nowhere, you know, Ohio, like you said, it's always been like Indiana Jones, Star Wars. And like, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But um, you're the first person to come on and been like, oh, I've seen this like DIY movie from who knows when, from who knows where. And that made me want to do it. It makes me think of a friend of mine who saw Bad Taste by Peter Jackson and is just so inspired by how he just did that entire thing himself. Um, so that's pretty cool. It's a cool answer. Uh, Christina, how about you? You know, for me, I don't know if there was one single moment. It's more of things that built up over time. Um, I would say in terms of like similarly to Tim, um, when we first started kind of working on making short films and stuff together, we were concurrently um, kind of, uh, I can't remember how we first came across this, but we started watching I think we saw our first Glass Eye Picks movie that we had rented from a, back when there were, <laughs> you could still rent video stores. And, um, and then we started watching like every Glass Eye Picks thing. And we realized that like, cause they had, they, I think it, um, they were just recently released at that point. And we realized, you know, they were a New York company and they were making these really like, you know, stretching the budgets and making them look like much bigger productions than they actually were. And I think that was maybe the first time I kind of realized like, oh, and I was able to start deconstructing, you know, reading interviews and learning how they did it, like how the actual practical production was happening. Um, but then in terms of, um, yeah, and I, in terms of actually doing filmmaking, it, it kind of, um, I, I did kind of suddenly decide to change careers, but it's it's hard to pinpoint um, when I kind of, you know, like what, what exactly contributed to that. I think it was over time, um, I was working in publishing, but then kind of on weekends, um, we were making short films and I helped out on another friend's web series. And I think it um, just over time started to remind me of um, kind of this workshop spirit of, theater that I missed from college. And um, so I really like, developed a passion for it and kind of decided that was what I wanted to do. And um, it went from there. So it all kind of happened simultaneously. So you mentioned glass eye picks and I know there's like a big uh, retrospect going on up in New York at the 
museum yeah the museum of modern art has like a big thing through april with all the films from glass eye picks i like i can speak really highly about larry fessenden he's been on this show he's i hope he comes back on this show sometime he's that that's he's a big inspiration to me so that that's cool that you know you kind of looked into films like that as inspirations um you did mention short films and all the short films you've watched and I, I must say I, I'm guilty. I have not seen the short films you guys have worked on together. I was trying to track them down. Um, I'd like to, but um, I know you did a few short films according to IMDb at least. Um, how important do you think, you know, just making short films prior to making a feature like is, is good, like practice, good warm up. Um, I think it was indispensable. I mean, especially for, for me, um, because that was my first time really being on set and just learning how it functioned and, and yeah, doing a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of trial and error involved. I don't know. There, there's a reason you can't find <laughs> all of them, although I'm very proud of all of them. They're, they all have their own kind of um, scenes that are very special. And yeah, so I would say without that, um, definitely wouldn't have... Um, felt like we could make a feature. And, and by the time we had had a few under our belt, um, that was when we started to feel like, okay, we're ready. And just kind of took an approach of making a, a bigger short film. Yeah, I, I think the, the first thing that I, I uh, tried to write and produce was a, was a web series pilot. You know, at the time web series were hot. Everybody was gonna oh, make, a, make a web series. And, um, and I had worked on several that, that were involved that, that had, uh, you know, different uh, game elements to them and different were trying different things. And so I wanted to make my own. And a friend and I, uh, actually Alex Lane, who was the uh, first AD on Blood Conscious, and I uh, co-wrote a, um, a little web, uh, sort of a web series. And so we decided to shoot the pilot as a proof of concept. And... Um, but we had never produced anything. We didn't know really what we were doing. We kind of lacked a lot of confidence. And what ended up happening is the collaborators we brought on, um, very talented people, uh, you know, many of them are still friends, but we found out basically eventually that we were making the, the classic mistake, right? We were making different. Yeah. Uh, these are different, completely different things, uh, which is like the ultimate mistake. Um, and we end up just shoveling tons of money to solve problems uh, that never could really be solved because we were making um, completely different visions. And I felt really bad afterwards and I um, really blamed myself for not taking a stronger stand creatively um, and being a leader and saying, okay, this is, this is what I want, this is my vision. Not, not to be domineering, but to, to say that, okay, this is, the, this is where we're going. This is the pathway. Let's get on it. If you don't want to get on it, that's fine. And, and we'll catch you next time, you know? Um, and up to that point, you thought of yourself as a writer. Yeah. Early, so. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'm a writer. You know, I design these little games and things like I'm not, you know, I can't direct anything. That's not, that's not me. I can't produce anything on my own. I wouldn't know how. And so, but, but going through that very painful process and, and costly process, um, realize, oh, you know, I think I, I think I can. So then we we set about doing um, a short where I where I said, okay, I'll, I'm gonna, you know, I've written this thing. We know the people who, who own um, a farm up in the Catskills. They're gonna let us come up um, and shoot up there. And I feel confident I can direct, you know, in in a place like that where I feel safe 
surrounded by people I'm familiar with, um, and we can kind of go from there. And then, and that's that sort of uh, led to the first uh, short film that I directed. I think I think Christina, you're a producer, a co-producer on that, and we we went up there and had a, had a good time. Um, yeah, it was a great shoot. Yeah, but I would say um, you know doing something like that, making those mistakes, it's essential. I mean, why make why make especially if you're trying to fund a, a fund films yourself. Um, obviously, if you're going to make mistakes, it's always better to do it on somebody else's dime. Uh, but it's uh, to me, it's make your mistakes on short films uh, and experiments and things, and and figure it out because if you, I'm not a hundred percent happy with everything that's you know with with any of the short films at the same time I, I kind of love them all because um the point of making them for me wasn't to have um a pristine piece of art it was to actually learn how to make a, a coherent movie um and so they 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 all succeeded in that respect all right cool before I get into blood conscious, I have one more little question here for you. Um, I want to talk about the horror genre and genre films and, you know, have, have you two enjoyed kind of playing around in that genre? Do you have plans to kind of venture out and do something else? Cause I know sometimes directors get pigeonholed in one genre. Some of them just do it once and then hop out and never go back. Or some of them are kind of constantly still doing something within the genre, even if they're, doing a completely different movie. Um, I mean, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, liking things like Bergman films and whatnot. And like, I feel like, you know, just, I feel like you two come from like a lot of different, a lot of different loves of different genres and cinema. So to get back to my question here, do you enjoy playing around in horror or do you want to expand? Well, I mean, speaking as a producer, I, I'm, I would say, I wouldn't consider myself a horror producer. I'm, I'm really just interested in making stories that interest me. And yeah. I realize that sounds like it could be anything. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, my tastes, I, well, I do have, I've always had an interest in the macabre and, and creepy stories. Um, you know, I love, you know, Coen Brothers movies just as much and um, really more kind of larger than life character kind of driven things. and. Um, I'd say, so I think the things that, that, are, that draw me to genre are the kind of more camp elements that you find, um, but that are in other movies too, if that makes sense. Yeah, for me, I, for Blood Conscious and, and some of my other uh, uh, unproduced scripts, I, they're, they're horror, um, ostensibly horror, let's say, um, but they're very much playing with the perception of Either either horror aesthetics or what we've come to expect out of a certain type of maybe uh, horror formula or type of storyline. You know, blood conscious being the this cabin in the woods and trying to subvert that in a in a in an exciting way. Um, but the um, you know I've written a number of different types of uh, films. I mean, uh, the thing that we most want to get off the ground right now is not uh, it's not a horror film. It's a it's sort of a hard bitten murder mystery uh, set in the Rust Belt. So it's not you know um, that's not something I don't feel like I um, I could you know the horror genre is somewhere that I need to just kind of plant myself. 
uh, indefinitely, mm-hmm. but it's, it's fun. It's fun to play with it. And I think aesthetically it's, it's, there are a lot of amazing possibilities. All right. Let's jump into why I called you two here real quick. Let me just kind of say, it. you know, I, I loved how this movie, this movie's like, I think the runtime was like 80, 81 minutes. And, you know, so it's, it's a tight movie, blood conscious. That's what I'm talking about. They're just t- tuning in right now, but, um, uh, it, it just, it, it just starts, it just kicks off. And like, you know, something bad is going to happen and something bad really is discovered and starts happening within five minutes, which I loved. It didn't waste any time. You guys just got in and started your story. Um, so commend you guys for that. I kind of, I, I like, I'm starting to like more movies like that. Like I don't need this 20, 30 minute origin story of, I mean, if you got the money, do it, but whatever. Uh, um, but let's, Talk to me about like how this thing came together in the early days and the early stages. Uh, you know, what was the point where the light bulb moment, like, oh, here's an idea and you ran with it. Yeah. That, the, the light bulb moment was basically this, uh, the first moment that I had in any inkling of maybe we, maybe uh, there's a story and it was uh, sitting around late at night watching evil dead Two. Uh and it gets to about the middle section of the film where Ash has been, you know, battling demons uh, in this cabin for however many minutes. He's exhausted. There's blood everywhere, gore everywhere. And then the door opens and in steps these vacationers who are, I guess, the children of the adult children of the people who own the cottage or the cabin. And they're horrified. Oh, my God. you know, and they think and you know, believably so, they think that he's a, a, a maniac who's killed their, their parents. Uh, so they lock him up in a cellar. Um, and then within the next few minutes, they realize, no, he, he's, he's fine. Uh, and there are these demons that are trying to kill them. Um, and the, the movie sort of uh, goes from there at full speed. Um, and when I seen that, I thought, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we had a movie, but it started there and the protagonists were the, the children, the, you know, these, these vacationers, um, you know, what, what would you do? I mean, what, what would you do if you saw this guy and, and he's, he's apparent, you know, he seems to have killed your family or killed these people. And he seems to be a, a, a shotgun wielding maniac. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. Lock him up in the cellar if you can, you know, uh, subdue him. But then what if, what if he starts to say, no, everything that's happened is because these people were, were demons. And what if you start to see things or experiencing things, experience things, maybe I don't mean demons running around with horns and fangs, but things that don't seem quite right. At what point do you cross that line from saying like, huh, you know, that's kind of strange, but this guy's a maniac to being like, what, what is this? Could this guy be telling the truth? Should I maybe consider him an ally uh, against a much, much uh, worse danger um, instead of just keeping him, keeping him locked up and, and treating him as, as a, you know, as a homicidal psychopath. Um, and so that, that was basically from the very first night, I think I said something to Christina, like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be kind of interesting? And, you know, w- w- does that sound like an idea? And she said, yeah, why don't, why don't you write it? Why don't you work on it? Um, and so that was the script. Um, and it's largely how it was originally written. Um, 
in the for the first half, um, and then something happens, um, kind of kind of mid midway through the through the story of Blood Conscious, where the family encounters a new person, mm-hmm. um, and that was very different, and that evolved over time. So to kind of go off that, I was one of my. I guess my language when I talk to other filmmakers is like, you know, just references. I feel like I picked up on, even if maybe it wasn't your, what you were going for, but as I'm sitting there and once the opening credits kind of kicked in and, you know, they're just in the car, I just felt serious shining vibes. I don't know. Maybe you've heard that in any press you guys have done, but I just remember feeling like serious shining vibes. And so I thought when I'd get you on to ask, you obviously mentioned Evil Dead too, but like, you know, throughout pre-pro on this or even maybe during while you're shooting, I know filmmakers do this. They sit their crew down and make them watch movies. Like, you know, what films did maybe you watch during prep to keep the juices flowing and ideas going? Well, uh, Shining, one of my favorite, I mean, all-time films uh, and certainly one of my favorite horror films. Uh, I don't think that I used it as an overt reference. I think it's just sort of <laughs> baked in there. Uh, yeah. and, and I've probably seen it 30 times. Uh, but it's, I, I, so kind of when you open a film with family in car driving someplace, uh, there's several films that sort of like immediately come to mind. You have to think like, am I going to reference these films overtly? You know, is, am I, is this going to be a pastiche? Is it going to be parody? Or is, am I going to try to do it, but do it differently? So, we're, you know, try to find like a new way to show family in car driving through the mountains. Um, and so at first I started off, actually the film that I was looking at, uh, especially with our, our director of photography, uh, uh, Sung Rae Cho, um, we spent a lot of time looking at funny games and if you think about the way the, the family's framed in, in the car, um, that's kind of more or less what we're going for. Uh, it doesn't work out quite as well because we didn't have a Range Rover. So we didn't have that nice boxy windshield, uh, but uh, that's kind of kind of where we're going through that, that very like mechanical um, uh, sort of high artifice or, or very apparent artifice um, right from the get-go. Um, but, I think, um, sort of interestingly, the the opening title sequence where you see the road swerving away. For me, when I watch it, I think of The Shining, even though it's not it's not really. I mean, The Shining's mm. a big helicopter shot, but it something about the vibe of it. I don't know. Strikes me as similar to The Shining, um, even though that was just conceived in post. Uh, I came up with it in editing because we had this shot and I really didn't know what to do with it. I thought it looked cool, too cool to give up and it didn't fit in. It didn't cut in with any of the dialogue. Um, so that I thought, well, can we just build a whole title sequence out of it? And then we, at the time we already had that song, um, part of the score from Sam Tindall. So um, it just all fit, fit in really nicely together. It's interesting that you built that in post. I, that just made me think of, uh, was it John Carpenter? Basically at the end of Halloween, he just like found some insert shots that they just, they shot for like establishing shots. And he just placed that in the end credits of Halloween. So that, that, that that's cool that you were just able to piece that together like that. 
Um, I want to talk about, you know, themes of this film. Like what themes were, you know, you guys trying to explore? What kind of messages were you trying to get to the surface? Um, what's really going on in this movie that, that you think from a creative perspective, just anything? Sure. Well, um, the big one for me is this, um, this dilemma uh, for people uh, where, you know, when, it, when you don't have all the facts, right? When you can't see everything, when you can't know everything, how do you determine, how do you make a decision that could have really grave impacts? Um, and at some level, you've got to kind of reach inside and find a, a moral compass. Um, and so our characters are trying to do that. Uh, the main family's kind of trying to do that in some way. Uh, it might say you're failing to do that. Um, but they, you, you've got you've to fill in the gaps somehow. And, that, and how you fill those gaps in will be based on your emotional state, your history, your psychology, social, fact, social factors that are going to kind of fit in there. And um, for me, especially the latter half of the film deals a lot with sort of rising paranoia people turning, people who would normally get, get along relatively well, um, turning on each other in a pretty severe way to the point of actually questioning each other's uh, humanity. And I feel like that's something, at the time I wrote it, um, we're talking about 2014 into 15. This is the aftermath of Ferguson riots. We're talking like, you know, Michael Brown being killed these kinds of things where where it's not even just uh okay well who did this how there's also this aspect of like someone's very very humanity being called into question and so um that was interesting to me but i think it's something that we see it's not just uh it's not always just uh based in in let's say racism but it it, it comes out in a lot of different arenas xenophobia um uh, basically, whenever whenever there's a uh, I think a conflict where people are looking for an easy answer or to kind of ju a justification for uh, some actions, you you often sort of see this, right? Well, yeah, normally we would do this, but these people are you know it doesn't count for these people or it doesn't count in this this scenario. And so in 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 Blood Conscious, we see sort of rising tension where. Um, we, at some point, some of the characters sort of throw out um, any kind of logic that would be based around the other characters having um, human motivations and apply this, well, a demon would do that, you know, mm. if they were a demon, they would do this. Okay. And that, that can then justify everything. Um, and that's typified by this character played by Nick DiMici called this, well, we refer to as the stranger, um, who basically has no moral moral gray area. I mean, he's he's made up his mind at the beginning of the film when we meet him that he knows, uh, you know, there there are demons and um, and they, you know, he has no choice, right? He's got you got to kill demon, um, and so he's not uh, he's not traipsing through some kind of moral uh, bog or anything like that. He's just he's got a clear road ahead. Uh, that's how you take care of demons. Um, the other characters have a, a, a more difficult journey and it takes takes them a ways to get to the point where they're able to act um, in any meaningful way. But And I would say um, 
it's it has been interesting to see um, since we've been you know working on the film over so many years and there have been so many drastic shifts in history and, and society since then and um, so the experience of watching it over the years I think the themes kind of shift for, for me from like viewing to viewing but um, I think a key thing and this also kind of goes back to when um, when was first conceiving it is this idea that um, when you know people are in conflict or turmoil they want to find a reason for it and you know find like a boogeyman to blame for it and you know the fact is there isn't one single reason why anything happens so I think you know a lot of people with the ending you know have been very divided over how they feel about it because it doesn't offer any easy resolution but it's to me that's just showing that like that's that's the world we live in. There, there is no answer for any of this. It just keeps going. Hold those thoughts on the ending. Cause I did have a question, not really a question, just give you guys a chance, maybe spoiler free to talk about the ending. Cause I was, I, 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 I definitely, I watched it and I was going like, I, I liked the ending. I'm sure there's people that might be a little divisive on it, but I liked the ending. Um, but you mentioned, you know, a lot of cat uh, cast members and characters just a minute ago, Tim, uh, for the both of you, just tell me about the casting process, finding these people to come be in your film. Sure. Um, well, uh, this, yeah, this happened kind of over the course of Tim writing it. Um, you know, once uh, he specified that the, the center, central family would be a black family, we um, immediately thought of Lenny Thomas for the role of Tony. Um, we kind of, we knew we had wanted to um, try to work with him um, whenever we got around to making a feature. Um, he was in uh, the last short that we made um, before doing this, which is called The Possession. Um, and uh, so um, Tim actually started to kind of shape the role for him um, in the course of um, uh, revising it. And uh, so um, then it was a matter of finding the other characters um, I actually met uh, Lori Hamill, who plays Margie, um, on a talking about web series on another web series that I PA'd, and kind of filed her away and thought, oh, she could be a good Margie. And then we reached out to her later when we were ready. Um, and then, um, yeah, the the other um, main characters, it, it kind of happened um, in various ways. Uh, so we we did cast. Um, uh, the characters of um, Kevin and Brittany, who are the, the brother and sister. Um, and uh, with Kevin, we knew that we definitely wanted a young actor, um, but because we were filming um, in the school year, we knew it couldn't probably couldn't be a college student. So we looked at recent grads uh, from drama schools and I started with um, Ithaca College, which is um, Tim's alma mater, alma mater, because they have a great theater program and um, it was kind of crazy. I, I looked at their um, website where they had the headshots of all the recent grads and my eye immediately went to Ogunero Faje, who, um, who we ended up casting as Kevin and, and pretty much just from his headshot, I would have cast him, but we did, you know, look at his um, reels and have him read for the role. And, and he just had this um, very warm, charismatic energy that I thought really helps balance, um, you know, it's a really essential for Kevin's character. Um, and then for, uh, for um, the role of Brittany, we reached out to, um, you know, agents and managers and put out a casting call. And um, 
when we got uh, Deshaun White's tape, um, she had this very interesting quality where she really got across the sense of fear and vulnerability. Um, so that was very different from what everyone else did. And um, then Tim met with her and she really embodied the character in a, in a very real way. So um, yeah, and then I think we um, did some kind of chemistry reads uh, with various people and with Lenny and, and that was the ensemble um, that we ended up choosing. Um, and then for Nick Dimitri, who plays the stranger, um, that, that one's kind of a, that one kind of goes back a few years um, because when uh, Tim was first writing it, we were thinking, oh, who could play the stranger? And we, you know, we knew Nick Dimitri from Stakeland. We were like, oh, he could be perfect, but we're never gonna get Nick Dimitri. Like he's, he's a thing. Um, but then kind of as time went on, I actually ended up um, uh, working eventually uh, getting a job working as an assistant to the director, Jim Nickel, um, which I had met him through an internship I had had. And, um, you know, he eventually found out, he and his partner, Linda Moran, that, um, you know, I was developing this film and really wanted Nick for the part. And they said, you know, okay, well, um, you know, I, I had been offered a job working as a writer's assistant on this show, Happen Leonard, um, which I went out to LA to work on. And they, they said, you know, Nick's gonna be coming out. So, you know, why don't you, you know, he's pretty choosy, so get to know him and, and see if he's interested. And, um, and then, yeah, just uh, met him through that show and, and we actually got along really well. And once I eventually got up the, the courage to send him the script, he, um, he read it that night and got like, went up to me the next day and said, I love the scripts, I'm in. Um, I'll, unless Steven Spielberg calls me, I'm, I'm gonna do it. So, um, which, which was awesome. And he, he was, yeah. Um, it's, it's a great role for him and it was really exciting to get to work with him. Nice. Nice. All right. Um, so since I know you two are a pair of New York filmmakers, I believe, uh, just an assumption, I take it you guys shot this somewhere in New York. Like, on yeah, we shot this up in the Adirondacks. Okay. It, yeah, okay. I've been through there. I, I but, um, so, so it's about, I think it's like, it's like five hours about, north of, of yeah. yeah um, talk to me about production. Talk to me about shoot days. Talk to me about challenges. Talk to me about successes on set, whatever chaos that went on. Hopefully nothing too bad, but um, just tell me about day to day there as much as you can, as much as you want to. Okay. Um, well, we had, um, uh... So we were up there for, okay, so I, I, at the time I, I was working a corporate job and I had to somehow convince them to let me off for, to be able to shoot the film, but not actually fire me so that I could continue to uh, have a job afterwards and, and pay off some of the, uh, some of the debt. So, I've been there, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we figured, okay, well, four weeks is the most anybody's gonna, gonna let me go for. So um, we did one week of prep and then uh, 15, you know, three weeks, 15 days of, of uh, shooting. Um, and it was all, I mean, or 90% of it was on that, on, in that one little location, yeah. um, which is a, a small uh, privately owned campground in um, just south of Old Forge. And it's uh, very beautiful. I mean, I think I really love how it looks in the, in the film, uh, but 
it, any basically if if we had shot it uh, anything wider than four three, you would have seen highway or uh, a power plant in, in in every shot. It's it's really uh, it was kind of uh, not a, not a large uh, piece of land and right on the right on a highway. Yeah, it's definitely not as remote as it looks in the film. Um, although there we did struggle a lot with um, not not having internet or cell phone uh, coverage. Really, it was very limited. So um, that was kind of a going in blind thing that, that I wouldn't do again. And we did manage to work around it. Um, but uh, I think, but it was definitely kind of a, like a summer camp kind of vibe. It, every single interior you see in the film was also someone's sleeping quarters. Um, so, you know, the, the art department very diligently, you know, remade the beds every day. And, um, and somehow everyone managed to stay out of frame. I really don't know how, because the spaces aren't that big. So uh, it's um, it definitely there's a lot of movie magic happening. <laughs> and I, I also might add, so this is the first film, was certainly first feature film that either of us had ever been on. Or first, I mean, we'd never yeah. even been on set before. So uh, uh, so it was a kind of it's one thing to do shorts and say, OK, well, we're going up for the weekend. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Well, if if such and such food, you know, such and such caterer doesn't work out. We'll work around it. We can do this for whatever. Then you start to realize like as first week crawls by and it's like, where's the garbage going? We're in a campground in the Adirondacks. We need this to go somewhere. We can't have bears crawling all over this campground. Like where are we getting catering from? Every place is closed. The season's over. Where, where's this food coming from? How do we feed people? Um, and that was a bit of a, uh, bit of a learning experience, but uh, it uh, somehow everyone got fed. Somehow everyone survived. Those are interesting logistics for day to day. Yeah, you're in the middle of nowhere. You, how are you going to get food out there? <laughs> Bears and stuff. Uh, um, so back to the ending. I want to talk about the ending real quick because um, it caught me off guard. It crept up on me, and. I mean, I can do a spoiler warning warning here. If you haven't seen it, go see it and then come back and listen to the ending of this episode. Um, but like, I want to hear the the filmmakers behind it, their their take as elaborate as you you two can on just kind of this. I know you mentioned device. There's people that are divisive about it, but I'm I feel like I'm on the side of like I get it and I kind of get what you're going for. But I wanted to hear what you two had to say about it. Yeah. Um... I, well, I think um, well, I think one thing worth pointing out is um, that there was originally a slightly different ending, which was written to a, a different location we thought we were going to be working with. And once we realized um, that we were going to be where we were, um, Tim actually had to rewrite it. So um, there was a matter of, is that true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I rewrote it, you know, about 12 times. Yeah. But um, so, so ended up tailoring it to that location and finding this um, this completely other campground, which um, was, it's like this very beautiful, you know, complex with these Adirondack buildings. And, um, and I actually, they do a lot of weddings there. And I actually kind of had to pretend to be a bride to book it um, initially, <laughs> uh, or at least to get their, their attention, but they were, they were very accommodating. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, so um, Tim kind of conceived this theme, I, I guess I'll, I'll let you, um, kind of go over the, the sort of bridal theme that you had in mind? Yeah, well, I, originally we were, you know, I came up with, I don't know, it, it, 
maybe a dozen different ideas over time about, well, okay, they, how do they get out of the campground? Well, do they, do they take a boat? Do they take a canoe? Do they take a lawnmower? Do they take, you know, there was a lawnmower. At one point, I don't want to shoot with a lawnmower. That sounds, you know, that's just, that just sounds miserable. Uh, So, so there were all these different, different ideas. And um, do they, do they discover that there are demons? Do they discover that there are not, you know, are they all arrested at the end? Are they, you know, are they accosted by demons at the end? You know, what, what, what happens? Um, And then I basically, while we were location scouting up there, we came across the, the location we ended up renting, um, but also uh, a number of others that were these wedding, primarily wedding venues. Um, and it just had me thinking, oh, well, what if there, what if there's just this other um, total different movie happening on the other side of the lake where it's just red wedding, you know, it, it, it's, they get paranoid about demons too. And everybody's killing everybody. And it's like nuts. And that's the real movie that that's like the bigger budget version um, with a cast of about 50. And then these guys think they're escaping their little, very intimate, uh, mm-hmm. paranoid nightmare. And so the next morning they head out. And then what, what happens is instead of getting to safety where they find a bunch of people that are actually sane and saying, oh no, don't worry, you know, there's no demons or, oh, we've got you, it's, you're safe now. No, they just find people who are even crazier than they, than they are. Um, and I, th- I also thought that the, the wedding imagery works well because we have this uh, engagement between Tony and Brittany that is, uh, comes to a, a you know, uh, tra- tragic end. And, um, and I thought uh, it'd just be nice to kind of, kind of bring that type of imagery back in there in this, this you know, for whatever reason, um, it might sort of resonate. Um, and that's kind of how it, how it came together. Um, as far as the kind of weird, the red chairs and the red trim on everything, that was already there. I just kind of ran with it because I thought it's kind of creepy to have that at a wedding venue. All right. All right. Cool. Um, well, again, look, I love the film. Obviously, I, I, to have you guys on here has been a real pleasure. Um, it's Blood Conscious, again, streaming on Shutter right now. Uh, check it out. I highly recommend it, just like how I just said. Um, but this is the time in the show when I let my guests maybe plug anything they got coming down the pipeline, whether they can or can't talk about it. Even if you say you can't talk about it, that does speak miles that it might be something really big. So you guys got anything coming up? I can't talk about it, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, can plug, uh, I guess, uh Social media, I'll say, um, you know, if you're if you're interested in reaching out about the film um, or about filmmaking in general or really anything, just want to say hi or, or that you like the movie, please do. Uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, Tall Tim Covell. That's C O V E L L. Um, we've also got the the movie accounts, so it's um, at Blood Conscious on Instagram and Twitter, and Blood Conscious Film on Facebook. So we've. Uh, do up, updates there as they come along. All right, cool. Um, well, I, I do want to ask just because I've I am not affiliated with Shutter whatsoever. I just uh, interview directors who have their film on that streaming platform a lot. 
Um, but do you guys, did you guys have any like direct relationship or connection to anybody there? And like, you know, can you speak? Nope. You're already nodding your head. No, they just, they just snatched it up from you guys. Like, well, that was, um, I think that was all brokered through our distributor. So we did, um, right. Right. Distribution through dark sky films, um, which I think having Nick Dimitri in the film was a big, uh, um, help there because they obviously have his whole catalog and love his work. So I think they were happy to, um, acquire, you know, one more. And, uh, so, and we, we, we had always thought it was going to be a good fit. So we were very happy to, to end up with them and, um, yeah, they've just been kind of doing their thing and getting the film out there. We had our initial, um, release August 20th to, um, you know, like digital and VOD. Um, and then, um, yeah, we found out that, um, Shutter had, you know, um, you know, accepted the film for release, um, you know, and, uh, we just, and that just happened. So, um, yeah. And it seems like we've gotten a, a whole new audience through that. A lot of people watching it yeah. for the first time, which has been really exciting. And I would say the, the Shutter audience, I think has been really receptive to, um, the film and the kind of peculiarity of the film, because it's not really, uh, you know, this, it's not a particularly, I guess, rock'em sock'em horror film. I mean, there, this, there are scares, but it's not terrifying. There's blood, but it's not gory in any way. It's more stylized. And um, it's been nice to see uh, people uh, react positively to that and kind of work to, to sort of understand maybe why, why we made those choices in the filmmaking. Um, rather than to dismiss it as a, you know, affectation. Yeah, no, de no, definitely. It's I, I'm happy it popped up there, so I could have, so I catch it. I think my my usual routine is Monday nights. It's I pop on Shutter. I, I break up my streaming platform so I don't get overwhelmed because I have every streaming platform now, and it's too much. Um, so I give those designated days. So Shutter Mondays are for Shutter, and yours dropped last Monday. And it's still on there now. So be sure to go check it out, all you listeners out there. And let me just say thank you, too, for coming on the show and talking to me and talking about your process and talking about the project with me. It's been a real treat. Well, thanks for having us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You listeners out there know the routine. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Uh, so the show does not go into the abyss and gets forgotten about, but you know, the, the ratings are doing pretty good right now. So, um, we'll see you guys next week. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>